Some words lose their power over time, becoming a shell of what they once represented. Like the word awesome. It used to mean that something was mind-boggling, utterly wonderful, awe-inspiring. But now, awesome basically means really good. Its meaning has become watered down. We've done something similar to the word peace. Kaylee, what comes to your mind when you hear the word peace? I think of people protesting wars, hippies, drugs, and peace signs. Maybe some listeners consider Eastern ideas of tranquility, harmony, or Zen. Everything fitting together in an intentional way. But these ideas are shallow in comparison to the Hebrew concept of peace, the idea of shalom. So what is shalom? Shalom shares ground with our English concept of peace, but it was a deeper peace that pierced into every facet of life. Synonyms for shalom included completeness, welfare, safety, soundness of body, health, prosperity, tranquility, and contentment. It wasn't just an absence of war. It really played out in five different planes. First, it played out individually. Shalom, as a greeting and blessing, sought the physical health, contentment, and the rest of the recipient. Shalom is something people could experience within themselves. Second, it had to do with the collective. Shalom had to do with friendships and human relationships. When there was shalom between people, there was trust, mutual respect, and loyalty. Modern sociologists summarize these qualities with the term social trust. When we survey various cultures, we see that those living this way thrive. When we respect and trust each other, we naturally work toward our mutual benefit. Third, shalom included harmony between us and the world. This meant peace with the earth, which we were created as gardeners and stewards of. The Hebrew law made clear that the land itself belonged to the Lord, so to mistreat the land was sin against God. Fourth. Shalom also meant harmony and equity within worldly governance. A nation did not have shalom if their laws were oppressive. Shalom had to do with peace between nations. Ancient people lived in constant tension and fear of invasion. They didn't have warnings of foreign invasion. Most of the time, they wouldn't learn of an invasion until the enemy suddenly arrived. On average, cultural destruction through war has occurred every 80 years throughout human history which means that most generations saw their land ravaged by war at some point. Shalom, in its fullness, included an end to such war, complete with swords being refashioned into plowshares, a tool that helps produce life. The book of Revelation depicts a future shalom in which the kings of the earth work together in peace. Death is no more, neither will there be mourning or crying or pain, and the kings of the earth will reign under the king of kings, the Lord Jesus. Which brings us to the last aspect of shalom. It was peace with the Lord himself. It described God's covenant relationship with his people. God sought a loving harmony, a loyal peace with his people. We might experience some of these aspects at times, but usually not all five of them. We grapple with inner unrest, relational distrust, public cynicism, natural crisis, and spiritual doubt. The reality is, we don't experience shalom. And this is not because God is withholding it, 
but because something terrible happened, we declared war on God. In Genesis 1, humans are described as being made in God's image, and to the ancient Near East, that phrase was only used to describe royal lines and priests. So an example would be the king of Babylon, named Gilgamesh, who claimed to be two-thirds divine and only one-third mortal. Being the image or representative of the patron god was what they believed bestowed kings with the right to rule. But in the Bible, it's not just the kings who are made in God's image. All people were. Humanity as a whole received the role of ruling. Sonship, being a child of God, was an essential component to being made in God's image. We can see this clearly displayed in Genesis 5, verse 3, which says, When Adam had lived 130 years, he had a son in his own likeness, in his own image, and he named him Seth. So what did the author of Genesis mean by the language of being made in the image and likeness of someone else? This was the language of sonship. And this was a radical departure from the ancient Near Eastern worldview. Divine sonship didn't just belong to kings, it belonged to everyone. This didn't mean that everyone should do whatever they happened to see fit. In fact, the Bible repeatedly warned against that mentality. God did, in fact, support and establish human authority figures, but these authority figures were made of the same human stuff as the rest of us. They had a special role, but nothing within their nature made them better than anyone else, and they would have to give an account for their leadership. This concept was unique to the Israelite worldview. In Genesis 1 and 2, we're introduced to the first royal representatives of humanity, Adam and Eve. As the patriarchs of humanity, they were our first high king and queen, the de facto representatives of humanity. There was shalom in the garden, and they were supposed to bring that shalom to the whole earth, to be fruitful and multiply, to fill the earth and cultivate it. They were supposed to push back the boundaries of the wilderness until shalom filled the whole earth. Bookmark that idea, that mankind's first job was to be fruitful and multiply. That is, have children and together fill and subdue the earth, extend the garden. Those roles will come up again in a second. Rather than follow God in their commission, we read in Genesis 3 that Adam and Eve joined a seditious coup against the Lord. They weren't just eating a forbidden fruit. They were taking sides with the devil in his war against God. They were exalting themselves as rivals to God. They were asserting their own definition of right and wrong, good and bad, that would be independent of the Lord. When they ate, our first king and queen declared war on God's kingdom. Shalom was shattered, and a curse was established instead. Humanity was exiled from the garden into the wilderness. And humanity received a consequence that totally inverted their commission. They were to be fruitful and multiply, but now their rebellion would cause childbearing to be marked with relational pain. They were to cultivate the earth into a garden, but now, because of humanity's rebellion, the ground itself was cursed. It was hardened producing thorns and briars, gardening would be much more difficult. As a result of our attempted coup, chaos multiplied until the Lord intervened with a flood, a reversal of creation itself. 
But God didn't give up on us. In an echo of the first creation, God separated the waters once more, creating dry land and trees. Then he renewed his blessing and commission to humanity. But then the fall narrative happened all over again. Noah cultivated a new garden, a vineyard this time. But when he got drunk on the fruit, another curse was established, this time upon Noah's grandson, Canaan. Shalom continued to fracture as our rebellious chaos kingdom, marked by curses, spread seeds of a long history of rivalry, oppression, and war. Another garden, another curse, a continued spiral in chaos. But the Lord was committed to establishing Shalom, so he chose a family to assist him in that purpose. A very chaotic family. It's hard to read the stories of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and describe them as a family of Shalom. But just as God made life from dust, he carved Shalom from the most unlikely places. The prophets foretold of a future king who would establish Shalom on the earth. Isaiah 9, 6-7 says, For to us a child is born, for to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulders, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Shalom. Of the increase of his government and shalom, there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. Jesus, the promised Messiah, is the Prince of Shalom. Through his life, he demonstrated what it looked like to establish shalom. Think of his life, relationships, and miracles. He healed the sick and the demon oppressed, creating shalom on the individual level. He healed lepers and befriended tax collectors, restoring them to their communities. He spoke to a violent storm that threatened to capsize his boat and kill his disciples. He told the storm to be still, and it was. He turned away from leading a revolt against Rome, a revolt that his followers desperately wanted. He told his disciples to put down their swords and pick up crosses instead. Jesus brought shalom to a land itching for war. Jesus was bringing shalom back to the creation itself, which was groaning and churning in the aftermath of the ancient rebellion. And on the cross, in his central culminating act, Jesus restored the broken shalom between God and man. He stepped into the rift and sealed it by his own blood. Suddenly death, the result of the ancient curse, rippled and convulsed. There's an odd text, Matthew 27, verse 53, that describes a sort of shock wave that burst from Jesus' cross. Dead people rose from their graves and walked around for a time. It's almost like death itself got knocked off its feet and it took a minute to recompose itself. But the damage was done, death lost. Jesus had successfully established a counterinsurgency, a new kingdom within the rebellious earth. Mankind would no longer be trapped in Adam and Eve's war against God. Jesus established a kingdom of renewed shalom and invited the whole earth back to God. It wasn't by mere chance that Jesus received a crown of thorns. Remember, Adam, the first king, was cursed with the advent of thorns and thistles. But on the cross, Jesus took the place of the rebel king. He wore a crown of the cursed wilderness. Jesus experienced the thorns and thistles of the curse, 
They were driven into him, yet he overcame them. On the cross, Jesus was cursed so that humanity could be restored to the garden, so that we could experience shalom with God, with our relationships with others, with the world, and within ourselves. It wasn't by chance or accident that Jesus resurrected in a garden. And we see in the work of the New Testament church, the apostles, reminding the early followers of Christ to live peaceably with their family, church, city, and God. Even creation was described as eagerly awaiting the release from its bondage to decay and to be brought into the incredible freedom of the children of God. It's like entropy and decay would one day fade from the story. God's original plan to make a flourishing garden earth was back. And in Revelation, at the end of the story, heaven and earth become one. The river of the water of life that was depicted in Ezekiel as causing the desert to bloom and sprout now flows from the city of God. And the tree of life grows there. Instruments of war are retooled as farming tools. And children are depicted as playing with vipers' nests without fear of danger. King Jesus, the Prince of Shalom, has established his rule over everything and everyone. And this Shalom will grow forever, as Isaiah foretold, of the increase of his government and his Shalom, there will be no end. If you take a look at the idea of shalom and crank it up to max volume, what does it look like? It looks like the kingdom of heaven with Jesus as king. But what does it look like for us now? We want shalom, but how do we partner with God in establishing shalom on earth as it is in heaven? Jesus didn't say the kingdom of heaven is going to come. He said, behold, the kingdom of heaven is at hand, now, today. In our episode on justice, we gave the analogy of a garden. What differentiates a garden from the wilderness is that plants thrive in a structured and intentional way. Their potential is unlocked, cultivated, and coordinated into a beautiful whole. But a good gardener knows when to prune, when to wait, when to plant, and when to uproot. And shalom is like that garden. If one plant is suffering while its neighbors are thriving, that's not shalom. Shalom happens when we are all flourishing together. Just like certain plants grow well with others, we can help each other thrive. Tall trees only tower so high because their roots interlock with their neighbors, providing the support each needs to withstand a storm. The thriving garden is a picture of shalom. And the act of gardening is justice, that is, mishpat. And the gardeners are the righteous, the tzaddik. So on a practical level, We cultivate shalom through the work of justice and righteousness. Shalom emanated from Jesus' life. Wherever he went, the curse was pushed back and people were restored. It was beautiful, but it was also a threat, a threat to our kingdom. Those who held power in Jesus' day were especially wary of his interference. And this is a warning to those of us who have power today. Jesus told us to follow him even by picking up our own crosses. True justice and righteousness is not easy or popular. It's costly. It often stirs opposition from brokers of power, both political and religious. 
Jesus walked through all of this, but shalom is worth it. We know how the story ends. Will we follow Jesus there? Are we willing to set aside our own comfort, reputation, wealth, and power, maybe even our own lives, so that our neighbors can flourish? Will we set aside superficial peace to partner with God in establishing shalom? The Master Gardener calls us to this task. It's His garden, and He is worth whatever cost. We'll leave with a quote from Isaiah 32, verse 17. The effect of righteousness will be shalom, and the result of righteousness, quietness and trust forever. 